Wharton recently launched its first ever online global MBA program for executives. The inaugural cohort will start in May 2023, and the application to apply is open and available now. Do you want to learn more about the program and learn how to get in? Pull up a chair. Our guest will tell you exactly what you need to know. Welcome to Admission Straight Talk, the podcast dedicated to graduate admissions and helping you approach the application process thoughtfully and successfully. Your host is Acceptance founder and world-renowned admissions guru, Linda Abraham. At Accepted, our mission is to get you to that unforgettable moment when you read your acceptance email and shout, yes, I'm in, confident you'll be attending the perfect program to help you launch the career of your dreams. Welcome to the 490th episode of Admission Straight Talk, Acceptance Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Before I dive into today's interview, I want to invite you to download Ace the Emba, Expert Advice for the Rising Executive. This free guide will complement today's podcast and give you suggestions on how to choose the right executive MBA program for you, differentiate yourself from your competition in a positive way, and present yourself effectively as a future business leader who will bring credit to any program lucky enough to have you. Download Ace the Emba at exhibit.com slash Ace E-M-B-A. Again, that's exhibit.com slash A-C-E-E-M-B-A. It gives me great pleasure to have for the first time on Admission Straight Talk, Peggy Bishop Lane, the Vice Dean of the Wharton MBA Program for Executives. Dean Bishop Lane earned her PhD in accounting from Northwestern University. She started her professorial career at NYU Stern and then moved to Wharton in 1997. She has been the Vice Dean for the MBA Program for Executives and an adjunct professor of accounting since 2012. Dean Bishop Lane, welcome to Admission Straight Talk. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Linda. My pleasure. Now, I'd like to start with some just general questions about Wharton's brand new global executive MBA program and then move into admissions topics. Is that okay with you? Sounds great. Okay. So just to start, can you give an overview of the Wharton global executive MBA program, focusing on its more distinctive elements? Absolutely. So I think the main thing to know is that we intend for this global cohort to look very much like our existing Philadelphia and San Francisco cohorts. Um, It's gonna be the same curriculum with the same, essentially the same faculty, the same admissions requirements. So I hope that it's actually more similar to what people already know about our program than it is different. Of course, what's unique is that you don't have to be in person every other weekend as you do in Philadelphia and San Francisco. So what we've created is a remote opportunity to do our program. Now, that said, it's also very important to us that it's not fully remote because we know how important an in-person experience can be to the the student experience. And so the truly unique part for us is the residential factor here. And we've got six different residential weeks that we've incorporated into the program. The first two are purposely very close together because we want the students to create some relationships and then solidify them very shortly after. So right now, our Philadelphia and San Francisco cohorts start together in Philly, and we're going to start our global cohort with them. So all three groups will start at the same time for about a week in Philadelphia. And we're gonna have our global cohort stay on a little bit longer, again, to give them that opportunity to really get to know each other well. 
And then about three months later, we'll bring them uh, back together in San Francisco. So they'll get to see that campus, feel the connection to our group out in San Francisco for about a week as well. And then the third one will be to cap their, their first year together, probably in some location outside of the United States, still to be determined. Okay. And then we'll have three more residential weeks in the second year, again, so that they can get to know each other and, and keep those bonds really alive. And are those, those last three, are they intended to be like Philadelphia, San Francisco, somewhere else? <laughs> or, or do you have any idea yet? Yeah, we do. So the first one will be another one where they get to interact with our Philadelphia and San Francisco students. Right now we have, in fact, we just finished it, um, what's called our Global Business Week, where we send our Philly and San Francisco students to their choice of four different locations. So we split them up, we mix them together. We're going to add a fifth location and then bring the global cohort into that. So they'll do that in September of their second year. Then they'll close out that term somewhere, again, outside the U.S., and then finish the program with a capstone experience in Philadelphia. So they start here in Philly and they end in Philadelphia. And the in-person events are always one week long, or except the first one, you said that was two weeks, right? Yeah, they won't always be a week. So like you just noted, the first one is a little bit longer than a week. Some of the others will be more like five days. Got it. Yeah. All right. All right. So, wow. Well, there's a lot to unpack in that that answer, and I guess we should dive in. All right. So the idea is that the program should be very similar to the programs in Philadelphia and San Francisco, except that a much greater portion of it is offered online. But what makes it global? What makes it global? Yeah, that's a great question. A, a number of things, really. First of all, we are hoping to attract a more global set of students. Um, In fact, that's really how this idea came to be. We had some questions in our admissions process during the pandemic from students who lived outside of the United States. And they asked us, you know, do you think you're going to remain online? And we said, you know, oh, oh, no, we we aren't. (laughs) And then we thought, actually, that's not a terrible idea, especially (laughs) as we learned that online education can really be done quite effectively. And so um, over that next 18 months or so, we really solidified that idea. And our hope is to attract students who really just can't come to the United States every other weekend. And so we think that the student body will be more globally located, I should say. We actually have quite a great global representation in the current program. But but most of the people are living and working in the United States. So we expect that to be different. The other thing that we expect to be different is because of that different audience, we expect the faculty to add a little bit more global content. I mean, a little less US centric than they might otherwise be. And then the last element of this is that we're going to require them to do a little bit more global coursework. So they'll have some more opportunity to do those global experiences than our current Philadelphia and San Francisco students do. Okay, great. Thank you. How many students do you think are going to be in the program? What do you hope to have in the program, at least initially? And then do you hope it'll it'll grow later? I mean, what are your plans in that that regard? I think, you know, our our plan for the first couple of years is to have the cohort be 
around 60 to 70 students. I think that's a really good class size. And then as we get better at this and learn, you know, what works and what doesn't, we can expand it a little bit further. So we're looking maybe to move that up to 90 to 100 students in the, in the near term. And then if it's wildly successful, we could potentially double that maybe. But I don't think we ever really want to get much bigger than our 120 or so students in the current Philadelphia class. I think that that size is as much as we'd want to do. We're not looking to you know, have a thousand students enroll in this program. Got it. Okay. Now, about 15 years ago, my daughter did an online master's program. It was, it was just what she wanted, the teacher she wanted, the topic she wanted. Everything was great. And she happened to be living at home at the time. And I watched her watch Talking Heads. Yeah. That was the program. There was also, I think, a certain discussion component, like a forum. Sure. Wharton is known for you know study groups, learning teams. How are you going to get from my daughter? And I realized it was 15 years ago, so that's why I opened with that. Yeah. But how are you going to kind of get from the talking head to interactivity with an yeah. online with the online component of the program, which is the most of it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and, and that really, Linda, is the key to this. Um, what we don't want to do is have somebody just sit on the screen and talk to the students for three hours like that. That would not be success. Recorded uh, on a video, by the way. That's fine. I'm, I'm fine with that. Um, obviously, there will be some of that because that's what professors do in a lot of cases. Right. But I mean, it's different if you're in a class, you can at least raise your hand. Yeah, well, you know what? What's great, and, and maybe the big difference between now and 15 years ago, right. is the technology that we have available to us. Here, here's what we learned over the pandemic. In an instant, we could easily become talking heads, right? That, that was pretty easy to do. And then over the next few months, as professors got comfortable with that technology, as our, our IT folks learned what's possible, uh, we expanded on that. And that was in a very short period of time. Now we've had years, right, for us <laughs> to true. figure out how to do that even better. And so where we're spending our time right now is looking at the different technology that we can use that does bring that classroom alive so that you're not just a talking head. I think that is absolutely paramount. By the way, not just in the classroom either but outside of the classroom. But in a way, I feel like the classroom part is actually the easier part of, of developing this program because I've seen some of the technology. And even so for myself, I'm also an accounting professor. And in teaching in that first fall of 2020, even every week that I taught, I learned something new that I could do that was fun and, and brought the class alive. And now that I'm back in the classroom, I actually miss some of those online techniques. So what may I ask, can you give an example? Like how, how will yeah. students in the Global Executive MBA program be engaged? How will they participate? Yeah, so um, it's easy to raise your hand, first of all. It's, it's what's really very interesting about online learning from my perspective is, especially for people who are somewhat introverted, um, they may not wanna raise their hand in the classroom. Right but it's much easier to do so online. You could raise your hand. You could simply put a thumbs up. You could put a heart. You could put a question mark. There's all kinds of emojis that you can use now in the classroom that you really 
you, in, in the online classroom that you can't do in an in-person classroom. So that's a very simple example. Another one that I love, again, it's pretty simple, but just breaking out into groups. Weirdly, you can break out into groups more easily online than you can in person. Because if you think about our tiered U-shaped classrooms, breaking out into a group is somewhat awkward and yeah. it's loud and you can hear the other group. And that's not true at all in an online group session. And, and those are the most basic of things. So there's lots of other ways that that's what we're looking at now is um, what are those technologies that we can use that are even better and more innovative um, than what I just described for sure. Great. Thank you. So yeah. it's definitely an important component of, of the program, bringing yeah. interactivity to the, to the online portion. If I could just add one little thing. Sure. There, um, Absolutely. The other thing that we're considering, and, and this will depend a lot on where the students that we admit are, are actually living, but we're also considering, can we do some things regionally? Because um, one of the challenges that we're going to face is time zones. And so even you know, if it's 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time in the United States, we want to have a speaker that may or may not be conducive to somebody else, you know, living somewhere else in the world. And so could we do some regional things online or even in person? You know, if we have a significant group of people somewhere in the world, can we do that? So those are some of the other things that we're looking at in terms of that inter interactivity that you mentioned. Okay, great. Thank you. Sounds like a lot better than my, my, my daughter experienced. So, so <laughs> what about the 25% that's going to be in person? What do you see happening during those, those five days to a week or 10 days when the, yeah. when the students are together? You know, that really should look a lot like what we do now with our in-person program. Um, they will be in class for six to eight hours a day. Um, they'll have lunchtime speakers or career sessions similar for evenings, leadership activities that we run through our McNulty leadership group. And then the other thing that's important about those uh, residential sessions is the time that we don't program, because I think it's very important for students to be able to relax together, whether it's over a meal or, you know, they, they go to a local pub or they decide they want to play soccer together. That seems to be a thing now that our students are doing. They're having soccer games together. Um, I guess we'd have to call them football games if they're outside the United yeah, States. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's true. But um, those are the things where those bonds can really get created. And, and they actually talk about the things that they learned in class that day or the speaker that they had. And it's a really wonderful bonding experience. And I think we don't want to get in the way of that, which is the thing they won't have when they're online. So we want to make sure that we create that space for them too. Yeah. For them to really develop relationships. Yeah. Now, I mean, it's clear from what you've said that the Philadelphia and San Francisco and global cohorts are going to meet, but will they ever actually work together or have projects together? That's a great question. Not necessarily until they do our Global Business Week course, which is the required international experience that they have. So we do intend to mix all three cohorts together in that. So that will be in a course. And then depending on how the particular professor runs the course, they may have projects together in that sense. Um, the other thing that could happen 
is in the second year, we are going to allow some movement between the cohorts, hmm. which is what we do right now with our Philadelphia and San Francisco cohorts too. If somebody wants to come from San Francisco to Philadelphia for a semester to take courses or even just one course, they can do that. I suspect it will be harder for the global cohort folks to come to Fillier San Francisco. That's why they're doing the global cohort. But you know, who knows what happens in someone's life over two years. So that might be feasible. The other thing we do expect to have happen is that our students in Philly and San Francisco want to do a course with the global cohort. So yeah. we are going to have that opportunity limited because again, we don't want to have a thousand people in a class, but we do want that to, to be part of the opportunity for us. Now this, I'd like to ask a more general question about the executive MBAs. Pro- professionally, where do they, I mean, nobody, nobody will do an, uh, an MBA, be it a regular MBA or an executive MBA, just to go back and do what they were doing before. So yeah. where do most of the executive MBAs go after they finish the degree? Are they, I assume most of them are career enhancers, but enlighten me, yeah, if you don't mind. It's it's almost an impossible question to answer. To generate, right. Because they are so varied in where mm-hmm. they're coming in from and what they want to do. So, you know, they're, they're at all different stages of their careers and in so many different industries and different functions. So, a lot of them are taking that next step within their current company. Maybe they're going from a functional position to a management position. That, that is relatively common. But we also see people completely changing industries really? and functions. Yeah, we do. And, um, and that's great. Um, we're, we're all for that as well. Um, one of the things I also love seeing is people will get the entrepreneurial bug while they're here. Um, they had no intention of coming here and starting their own business, but they're talking to classmates, they're hearing from faculty, they're hearing from alumni, and they get an idea, or they, they talk to a classmate who has an idea, and then they realize, oh, I, I can add to that idea, and the next thing we know, they're starting a business together. So, you know, I would say those are really the three major pathways, and, and we, see, we see it all the time from, from all different angles. All right, great. Thank you. Yeah. Before we go into the admission stuff specifically, I just have, I have one more more general question. Sure. Is there anything that now, the global MBA is brand new, so it's not going to be specific to that program at the moment? But Wharton has been a pioneer in executive MBA education. Is there something that many people don't realize about the Wharton executive MBA programs, or is there some myth that you'd like to dispel in connection with those programs? Um, yeah, I I think. I think it's still a myth. I hope it isn't, but it might be, so I'll address it. Okay. Um, it's, it's not a competitive program. I know a lot of people think Wharton and competition and cutthroat, but that's not at all how this program functions. I think the people that come into this program are, one, so happy to be here and so in so much admiration of what their classmates have already accomplished that it becomes a very close-knit community and we see students helping each other, whether it's in, in the classroom, if they have an expertise and their classmate is struggling, they help them out. If it's on a project and they take on you know, a bigger part of the load because somebody else is swamped at work or, or they just had a baby, you know, those are the things that happen in their lives. And it's, it's really heartwarming to see them rally behind each other on a regular basis. I, I think that 
I hope it's not still out there, but just in case it is, I, I, I want to put that one to rest. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Now let's turn to the admissions, okay? Wharton, as I understand, requires either the GMAT, the GRE, or the executive assessment if someone has at least eight years of experience. Is that is that correct? Yes. Okay. How should applicants, let's say they have the prerequisite eight years of experience, how should they decide which, taste, which test to take? That's a great question. Um, and I, I don't know if my answer is going to be that helpful to people, but right. this is how I believe. This is what I Okay, believe. okay. Um, I think it's whatever tests make them the most comfortable. Okay. Because what we're trying to get at with a test is what's your foundation for what you know? And if someone is very nervous when they're taking the test, then that's not going to let them really show us what they know. So whatever test makes them feel more comfortable, if they can feel comfortable in a standardized <laughs> test, then that's the one they should take. Uh, okay. We don't, we're not going to weight one test more strongly than another test. So you don't have any preference. We don't have a preference. So whatever one gets them to the point where they can show us what they can do and who they are, I, I think that's the best one. Wonderful. Let's touch on the essays for a minute, okay? Now, the executive program has two required essays and one optional. What do you hope to learn from the essay and the written materials in, in the application that you don't, let's say, get from a resume? Trend, well, I guess a resume is a written material, but the basics, the, the resume, the GPA, and the test. So the first essay, I think, is probably the most foundational, and that is just to help us understand why you want to do this, what's your goal, and, and how is a Wharton executive MBA going to help you do that? And the reason isn't to prove something to us. There's so many different great answers to that question. We want the candidate to, to just be themselves with us. Tell us how you really feel, what you really thought, and I think most importantly, that you have thought about it. That's the most important thing, right? That you've given some, some real time and thought to what do I want to do with this knowledge that I'm getting with this network that I'm acquiring? How is it going to help me professionally and in, in their personal goals? That's what we're trying to learn from that first essay. The second essay is much more specific. It's, it's about diversity of thought and voice. That one's important because we want to, one, signal that this is a very important aspect of someone's contribution to the program and what they learn here and, and take out of the program. And so if that's important to us, we, again, want to make sure that the candidate has thought about that. How have they experienced this importance, this value of bringing a different voice into business and into a conversation? How have they experienced that in their life, either through their own personal experience or something that they've witnessed in their job that will help them to think about that process at school and then more importantly, after they graduate? There's a third optional essay. Yes. Mm -hmm. And it, it, really genuinely is optional. <laughs> I think a lot of candidates think, oh, but I better fill out that third essay. But you really only have to fill it out if you have something else you really need to tell us. Those first two essays and everything else in the application are getting us the information that we need 
to assess candidates. But if there's something else, some extenuating circumstance, something um, dramatic that happened in your life that explains more of what you're talking about in the rest of your application, that's when you use that optional essay. Great answer. Thank you very much. If one is lucky enough to be invited to interview, what is the interview like? Uh, I've heard our students say that the interview was a lot of fun mm -hmm. and very much a conversation. And that's what we want. Uh, we want candidates to, again, be themselves, really just kind of round out that application for us. Tell us a little bit more about the details. Let us kind of put more of your personality, your character behind what we see on a piece of paper. And at the same time, we also want to make sure that we're answering candidates' questions, right? We're, we want to make sure they have all the information so that they can make great decisions as well. Great. Thank you. What would you say to applicants who want to apply to, let's say, the Global Executive MBA program for its first cohort, but are worried about the possibility of recession, or if they're abroad, they're already dealing with very high inflation, perhaps in Europe, and I think there they probably are in a recession, in parts of Asia, I think also. How would you, how would you address that concern? Well, you know, anytime you're advancing your education, I think you're preparing yourself for the future. And so I would say that's going to be true as well in a recessionary environment. You're investing in yourself and two years from the time you start the program, you're going to be that much better off positioned for anything that your company or the economy can throw at you. And so I would say, you know, recession or not, investing in yourself is always a good move. Timing wise, I think you have to look at, you know, your company and be speaking with the folks in your company about, you know, what is the right time. But I would say from an overall perspective, preparing yourself for the next big thing, that's always going to be a good move. Great. And hopefully coming out into an expansion. That would be the, other, yeah. the other part of it. If you were a potential applicant thinking ahead to a 2023 or 2024 application, in other words, not this first cohort, maybe the second or the third or the fourth cohort, what is the one thing that you would be doing to prepare yourself to apply? Well, and it I can be more than one, by the way. Yeah. Oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> well, I would say this is also true if you're applying now, but um, you'd have more time to do it if you're applying a year from now. The most important thing is to talk to the people who support you need. This is much more crucial in an executive MBA environment where you're working at the same time than it is in a full-time MBA environment because you really need the support of your employer and the people that you work with. So that includes your peers and your direct reports as well. So I think having those conversations with people up front is really important. Same goes for one's family, right? You need their support too. So speaking with your partner, if they're of an appropriate age, your children, so that they know why you're studying at night or why, why is mommy or daddy doing homework with me now instead of helping me with my homework? Those are good conversations to have, really important conversations to have. Uh, well in advance of applying. So I think that's the most important thing. But if you're giving me a second one, okay. um, then I would also say, especially important for executive MBA candidates is preparing for standardized tests. 
because it's been a long time for some of these people since they took a test, since they sat down at a desk to study for hours on end. You know, in business, we're up, we're down, we're on the phone, we're, you know, we're always on the move. And even just sitting down to study is a skill that clearly people had at one point, but might be a little bit rusty. So however that preparation uh, falls out, any kind of preparation is better than none for whatever test you're taking. So I think it's a bad idea to go into a standardized test cold. I think it's really good, even if you're just using the prep material that the test uh, designer gives you, it could go from that all the way to, you know, taking one of these test prep classes, but something that really just gets the rust off of a person who, where it might've been 10 years since you took any kind of test. Right. Kind of removes some of the cobwebs up there. Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Right. What would you have liked me to ask you? Well, I would have been good and I'll, I'll ask it for you. Okay, please do. (laughs) Um, If you had asked, what is a typical Wharton executive MBA student look like? Because I would have said, there isn't one. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and, and I think that's really important for people to hear okay. because they think sometimes that we're looking for a type and we're not. There are so many different types of individuals who can be successful in this program and really take the knowledge from it and just run with it that I don't ever want someone to think that they couldn't possibly be considered. And we hear that from a lot of really great candidates, some of whom get pushed into applying by someone in their life. And then they tell us later the story of how, oh, I wasn't even gonna apply because I didn't ever think I could get into Wharton. But we're looking for all kinds of people with all kinds of backgrounds, both in terms of academics, your career trajectory, um, where you grew up, in all of that. We love diversity in all kinds of forms. And I think that that's how we get it. I know one thing we sometimes hear, and, and again, we've many times encouraged applicants to apply to programs that they previously hadn't considered. And this is particularly true with executive MBA applicants is I got really poor grades as an undergrad, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago, depending upon how old they are. And but they've had great work experience. Maybe they were immature. Maybe there was family issues, whatever it was. They've proven themselves. They're quite bright. And then, you know, we'll encourage them, look, show that you can do the work, show via the test, maybe take a course or two, do something and then try it. And yeah, some of them have graduated Wharton. Absolutely. And that's where I tell people, you know, the standardized test can actually be your friend because it can show what you know today and who you are today a lot better than some grades that you got when you were 20 years old. So I think that's a a really great part of of that idea. I actually was recently uh, interviewed by a small, I think, college paper. And at the end, I said, look, you, you know, the test, you can view it as a hurdle or you can view it as an opportunity. Mm-hmm. That's right. So um, this, sometimes it just is the hurdle, <laughs> but it also can be an enormous opportunity depending really upon can. your background and, and frankly, how skilled you are at test taking. Yeah. So, and that's where the prep comes in, right? So yeah. if you are skilled at it, doing a little bit of prep can really help advance that and, and take advantage of that opportunity. That's right. All right. Well, Dean Bishop Lane, I want to thank you so much for joining me today. Where can listeners and potential applicants learn more about Warren's Global EMBA program? Because I'm sure they're dying to apply now after listening to this. 
Well, I hope so. You can find us on the Wharton website and the URL is executivemba.wharton.upenn.edu. Great. Thanks again. We're going to include links in the show notes at exceba.com slash 490 to the site Dean Bishop Lane just mentioned, as well as two related articles for executive MBA applicants. They're all linked to from exceba.com slash 490. And a final reminder, download your free copy of Ace the Executive MBA, Ace the EMBA, expert advice for rising executives from exceba.com slash Ace E-M-B-A. Again, that's exhibit.com slash A-C-E-E-M-B-A. Listener, thank you too for joining Dean Peggy Bishop Lane and me for our 490th episode. If you find the show worthwhile, please tell your applicant friends about it. Make sure that they and you don't miss any future shows, whether with admissions directors, professors, current students, test prep pros, deans, or alumni doing great things. Thanks again for coming. This is Admission Straight Talk, produced by Accepted, and I'm your host, Linda Abraham. I'll talk to you again next week.